Carly. And today we are going to be discussing the Golden State Killer, also known as Joseph D'Angelo. And before we get started, um, this is going to be our first official two-part episode. Once we started um, researching and making our show notes, we realized that we were going to get close to like 10 pages of notes and we can't do 10 pages of notes in one session. So we're going to break this up. We'll do um, the beginning of the podcast this week and then next week we will handle part two. And now I'll hand it over to Carly. So as I've mentioned in many of our episodes, I have a lengthy collection of true crime books with one of my favorites being the Wikipedia Encyclopedia of serial killers, an A to Z guide to history's most heinous murderers. This book contains 50 serial killers, sometimes groups of killers depending on the case, over the course of 580 pages. We have used this book for research purposes for many cases including Todd Kohlhepp, Ted Bundy, and Dennis Rader. A lot of information from this episode, the Golden State Killer episode, will be pulled from this particular book. In addition to this book, I personally used goldenstatekiller.com as a source for a lot of information as well. It's not often that we run into an entire website dedicated to one specific criminal, but I do recommend browsing that website if you want more in-depth information on each crime that Joseph D'Angelo committed. As Carly just mentioned, in our promo post, we used a direct quote from goldenstatekiller.com that read, With 13 confirmed murders... 50 rape victims, over 200 burglaries, and countless years terrorizing the state of California, the Visalia Ransacker, East Area Rapist, Golden State Killer was one of the most prolific serial offenders in history. According to Wikipedia, D'Angelo was responsible for at least three crime sprees throughout California, each of which spawned a different nickname in the press before it became evident that they were committed by the same person. We'll dive into the origin of each nickname in a bit, but for now, we will discuss D'Angelo's background. Joseph D'Angelo reportedly witnessed his seven-year-old sister's rape by two airmen in a warehouse in West Germany where the family was stationed at the time. He was just a young boy. Later on in D'Angelo's life, we learned that he was abused by their father while he was growing up per his sister's claims. During his teenage years, D'Angelo played junior varsity baseball and, according to authorities, committed smaller crimes such as burglaries and torturing animals. Of course, the torturing animals. Yeah, it's always a red flag. Dead giveaway. After high school, D'Angelo joined the Navy where he served in Vietnam and then attended Sierra College in Rockland, California and Sacramento State University, earning degrees in police science and criminal justice, respectively. Additional police training took place at the College of the Sequoias in Visalia, and finally, a 32-week police internship was completed at the Roseville Police Department. D'Angelo served as an Auburn police officer for three years when he was arrested for shoplifting a hammer and dog repellent. (laughs) (laughs) If if he was a popo, (laughs) why do you need to steal a hammer and dog repellent? First of all, they probably give you a hammer on the job. Second of all, dog repellent. They give you a damn gun. I mean, (laughs) obviously you don't want to use that because it'll get traced back to you. But anyway, um, as a result, he was sentenced to six months probation and fired. 
While being fired, D'Angelo threatened to kill the chief of police and allegedly stalked the chief's house. Nice. So, D'Angelo's romantic history is one of many red flags for me. I'm glad KD from our Twitter mentions brought it to my attention. His first engagement failed as he threatened his fiancee, Bonnie Jean Colwell, with a gun to try to force her to marry him. This is where it gets sketchy to me. In November 1973, he married Sharon Marie Huddle, who eventually became an attorney in 1982. Pure speculation here, but guess what also started the year D'Angelo got married? D'Angelo's Vassalia ransacker spree. Considering his knowledge as an officer and his wife studying the law, wouldn't that kind of pave the way to executing all these crimes flawlessly, flawlessly without being caught? Not pointing fingers or blaming anyone here except Joseph, but imagine being married to him all those years and never catching on to anything. Once again, pure speculation here, but maybe she was complicit. Again, speculation. Don't cancel me for theorizing. Okay, so now we can get into the nicknames. As I've already mentioned several times, the first is the Visalia Ransacker. Visalia, and I'm pronouncing this like Vidalia, like the onion, and I could totally be wrong. Didn't know there was an onion in that. Vidalia onions? Sounds good to me. Wow, okay. <laughs> Visalia was the scene of more than 100 burglaries according, according to crimemuseum.com. The burglar we now know as Joseph D'Angelo would ransack the homes, stealing mostly replaceable items and women's underwear. In September of 1975, a man strongly believed to be the ransacker broke into the home of Claude Snelling in an attempt to kidnap Snelling's daughter. The intruder shot Snelling twice and escaped as Snelling died from his injuries. There was another attempted break-in and shooting in December of that year, but the ransacker evaded police once again. After the December attack, the burglary stopped in Visalia. The next nickname is East Area Rapist. In 1976, the East Sacramento area became the hunting grounds of a serial rapist. D'Angelo began by stalking women and being a peeping Tom, but escalated to actual rape on June 18, 1976, when he broke into the home of a single woman in Rancho Cordova and raped her at knife point. He committed at least 49 more rapes in the East Sacramento area and surrounding cities, the last known rape being on June 11, 1979 in Danville, which sits just outside of San Francisco. In 1978, the East Area rapist murdered Katie and Brian Majori while they were walking their dog in Rancho Cordova. The next nickname was the original Night Stalker. On October 1st, 1979, he broke into a home in the Southern California town of Goleta and tied up the couple living there. Fortunately, neighbors heard the couple's cries for help and called the police. He fled the scene on a bicycle. He was dubbed the Night Stalker, but later renamed the original Night Stalker after Richard Ramirez received the same moniker. If you're interested in Richard Ramirez, we did a bonus episode on him, look it up. The original Night Stalker went on to murder four more couples and a single woman in Southern California from 79 to 81, raping the women before killing them. The murder stopped until 1986 
when he raped and murdered 18-year-old Janelle Cruz. And now I'll let Carly cover the Golden State Killer moniker. Before I start with the details of each murder, I want to talk about the Golden State Killer in the sense of communication. He often communicated with his victims and law enforcement officers anonymously. The first known communication was with his first victim on May, in May of 1976 when he called her several times but hung up every time she answered. In September of 1975, D'Angelo called his fifth victim repeatedly and ended up telling her that he was going to, quote, kill her husband. In December of 1976, victim number 10 received phone calls for 17 days. D'Angelo would call her and he would hang up every single time. He did the call and hang up thing to a few other victims until January 25, 1977, when the Sacramento Sheriff's Office received a phone call from KXTV, a local news station, saying that they had just received an anonymous call saying that the East Area Rapist was Jack Neal. From there, the 14th victim, 27th victim, and 15th victim received constant hang-up calls from D'Angelo. On March 18th at 4.15 p.m., the Sacramento Sheriff's Office received an anonymous call saying, quote, I'm the East Side Rapist. Fifteen minutes later, the Sheriff's Office received another call saying again, quote, I'm the East Side Rapist. The same exact day, just 30 minutes later, the Sheriff's Office received yet again another phone call stating, quote, I'm the East Side Rapist and I have my next victim already stalked and you guys can't catch me. We will insert that clip here um, just forewarning. It is explicit, um, so if you don't want to hear it, just go past about 15 seconds. More of the same happens, a lot of phone calls and hang-ups to future victims, until on November 7, 1977, there was a note found in the women's bathroom of a local campus that read, quote, The East Side Rapist was here. I will rape my first black girl tonight. The dumb cops will never find me, end quote. On December 2nd, the Sacramento Sheriff's Office received a call from D'Angelo saying, quote, I shall commit another rape, end quote. Eight days later, the Sheriff's Office received a call from D'Angelo telling them exactly where he was going to be that night. He says, I am going to hit tonight, Watt Avenue. That was the last major phone call that D'Angelo made besides his usual call and hang-ups. Throughout this time, though, when he would call some victims, instead of hanging up immediately, D'Angelo would ask the victim questions like, Are your parents home? How many people live in the household? And many of the victims, if not all, would openly tell the caller that information. They had no idea who this guy was or what he wanted, but they would be open and they would ruin it for themselves by giving out this type of sensitive information. On October 1st, 1979, like Pinky touched on, on the 5400 block of Queen Anne Lane in Goletic, California, a couple was alarmed around 2 a.m. 
when D'Angelo broke into their home and bound them separately with twine. At first, the couple thought that their house was just being targeted for burglary. That is, until they heard D'Angelo whisper to himself, quote, I'll kill them. The couple waited for D'Angelo to leave the room and they sprung into action, trying to break free of the ties. D'Angelo realized that they were able to move much more than he had planned, so he hopped on a bike and took off. Meanwhile, the couple's neighbor, who just happened to be an FBI agent, realized what was happening. The neighbor took off chasing D'Angelo, but he was on a bike and she was on foot. D'Angelo ditched the bike and the knife that he had, and before the neighbor knew it, D'Angelo disappeared into the dark backyards of Galetta, California. Nearly three months later, on December 30th, another Galetta couple was attacked. In the early morning hours, around 4 a.m., D'Angelo broke into 44-year-old Robert Offerman's apartment and shot Offerman along with Offerman's girlfriend, 35-year-old Deborah Manning. When the police arrived on the scene, there were many different clues than those found at the October 1st attempt. First, paw prints, likely from a large dog, were found inside the apartment, but there was no dog to be found. This led police to believe that the dog was brought into the home by the attacker. Next, the restraints that D'Angelo used to tie up Offerman were looser than what they had expected, meaning that it was possible that Offerman fought for his life until the very end. Police canvassed the area, speaking to other tenants. One of Offerman's neighbors told the police that she had heard gunshots that night. After murdering Robert Offerman and Deborah Manning, the attacker broke into the neighboring apartment and stole a bike. He fled the scene almost immediately after the attack, and the bike was found a couple blocks north of the scene. On March 13, 1980, in Ventura, California, Charlene and Lyman Smith were both found bludgeoned to death in their home by way of a log from their own fireplace. Both victims had been bound, and 33-year-old Charlene had been raped. The most interesting clue to police was that the way that the couple had been bound. They had been bound at their wrists and also at their ankles, but the knot that the attacker had tied was a Chinese knot known as a diamond knot. Police instantly connected this attack with one of the attacks committed by the East Area Rapist because after the East Area Rapist committed said attack, he was known as the Diamond Knot Killer due to the complex knot. So another nickname? Yes. Wow. That one was very brief, though. Um, so, yeah. A little over five months later, on August 19th, D'Angelo struck at a home on Cockleshell Drive in Dana Point, California. This specific house, owned by 24-year-old Keith Harrington and 27-year-old Patrice Harrington, was in a very nice, gated community. The couple had only been married for three months at this time. Patrice was a nurse, and Keith was in medical school at UC Irvine. Police found the couple yet again bludgeoned to death, and Patrice had been raped. Hold on real quick. So... We've mentioned her a couple times before, but we have a friend, Holly, who is a um, super big true crime podcast fan, and um, she's been suggesting the Golden State Killers since, like, the beginning of her podcast, and every time I mentioned him to her or when she found out that we were doing this, she always made a reference to how much of a sick psycho 
bastard, excuse my language, he was mm-hmm. or is. And I admit, I didn't know much about him. But the more and more we read about each crime, and obviously we can't cover each crime, it becomes more apparent why she's so passionate passionate about her hatred of him. Yeah. Because this dude is like, like, like Carly just said, it was a young couple that had only been together for three, only married for three months. Mm-hmm. And boom, she's raped and he's dead. I don't know. Yep. He was a monster and he, it was, I mean, like during this time, you know, he was committing all of these murders and rapes and burglaries and I just don't understand how he was, he didn't get caught. He had, he barely had any time in between each crime. I I just don't understand. I mean, there were times that he would commit two crimes a day. Right. Interestingly enough, it didn't appear that either of the two had been bound, and there was little to no evidence, including no murder weapon, found at the scene. This made it very hard for police to collect anything that could be pertinent to the attack. Bruce Harrington, Keith's brother, stayed with the police about the investigation. He even spent $2 million of his own money to fund DNA collections from California felons, but ultimately nothing turned up. D'Angelo didn't attack for a while, and really, people thought that he had died, been arrested, or something that would not allow him to, t- to attack. But on February 6, 1981, 28-year-old Manuela Witten has, was attacked alone in her home in Irvine, California. Typically, Manuela's husband would have been there, but he was in the hospital due to a prior illness, so this left her to fight for her life by herself. Manuela was bound at the wrists and ankles, raped, and then bludgeoned to death. When police arrived to the scene, there was no murder weapon, and the attacker had moved the ligatures and taken them with him. Manuela's TV was found in the backyard, possibly to throw law enforcement off. So I know that he had no issue with attacking couples, but I wonder if he was, like, watching her. Because... Typically, she would be alone, but at this time, her husband was in the hospital. Right, and I have mentioned before that he was, and I'm not sure, really sure how those phone calls coincide with the attackers. Right. Um, but she very well could have been someone who gave out sensitive information. Um, right. You know, my husband's not here, he's at the hospital, um, and he preyed on that. When I was younger, I didn't quite, I mean, I, under, I understood enough to follow instructions, but... My parents would always be like, you know, if someone calls or comes to the door and you're home alone, like, don't give them any information. And I'm like, I mean, why not, you know? Mm-hmm. Not because I was, just because I was a kid and I didn't understand, but now it makes even more sense because there's sickos out there that are really, like, watching you from across the street mm-hmm. and being like, may I speak to your husband about the cable bill? It's right. like, oh, he's not home. And it's like, all right, cool, I'm going to come in there and kill you. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. On July 27, 1981, D'Angelo attacked 35-year-old Cherie Domingo and 27-year-old Gregory Sanchez around 3 a.m. at Domingo's home in Galetta, California. Toltec Way, where this attack took place, was only several blocks from where Robert Offerman and Deborah Manning were murdered. 
D'Angelo broke into the house through a small bathroom window. Domingo was bound by the wrists and ankles, as bruising indicated, but Sanchez had not been bound at all. Sanchez was first shot in the face and then bludgeoned to death with a garden tool that was not found at the scene. After being bound, Domingo was raped and then bludgeoned to death as well. The last murder was committed on May 4, 1986, almost five entire years later. 18-year-old Janelle Cruz was home alone at her family's Irvine, California home when D'Angelo broke in and attacked her. During this time, Janelle's family was in Mexico for vacation, but Janelle had stayed behind for whatever reason. Janelle was bludgeoned to death, but of course the murder weapon wasn't left behind. Janelle's stepfather reported a pipe wrench missing from the home as a possible murder weapon. As the murders were happening, they weren't connected. There was a lot of lost communication between a Sacramento detective and the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Department. At one point, a man close to one of the victims was actually falsely charged with two counts of murder, but was later dismissed after lack of evidence was proven. So that's all we have for part one of the Golden State Killer. Um, next week, we'll get into like his criminal profile and um, the trial, because eventually he was apprehended in 2018? Yes. Yeah. And... The way he was apprehended is kind of controversial, controversial, but it's also interesting, and we'll save that for next week. Um, but yeah, I mean, I did, you know, Carly and I, we often split up <clears throat> the research, and I did the first half and just basically touched on his background and the nicknames, and then hearing Carly talk about each crime, this one's kind of, not kind of, this one's pretty disturbing. Mm -hmm. um, I agree. Already said that once in reference to Holly's attitude, but yeah, I mean this this guy clearly had zero remorse, and um, a point that we always bring up, not even that we always bring up, a point that we always come across is <clears throat> more often than not when people grow up to do these types of criminal acts to other people there's usually some type of abuse in their background and we never mention that as an excuse or a reason but it's just one of those commonalities you come across when you're doing true crime anything um and i just feel like you're right that we don't mention that as an excuse and i feel like that it shouldn't be an excuse but it should be the actual opposite you should want so badly for someone not to feel the way that you felt so that you don't do these things to people. Yeah. Yeah, but everybody's different, and not everybody has, like, a support system and resources that pushes them in that direction to make them think that... Uh, okay, like, on a much lesser, much, much lesser scale, and I'm not comparing at all, but, like, people who are older than us or people who had student loans and paid them all off. Mm -hmm. And now they're like, we don't want to see student loan debt forgiveness because we had to pay them off. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like right, yeah. how people yeah. want others to go through what they went through. Yeah, yeah. Not comparing it. I can see that. Because it's not the same, but those attitudes are common as well. They need to go. 
excuse me, but um, we aren't therapists, so just uh, an opinion we share. Um, next, we have two crimes of the week. Um, we're going to try to get back into the funny ones again. I kind of went off on a tangent last week about Bill Cosby, but let's start off with a more serious one. And this one was pulled from a state trooper page on Facebook, Kentucky State Trooper. It reads, Kentucky State Police investigates murder in Lawrence County. And Lawrence County is what, like one county, two counties over? Yeah, it's like 30 minutes. Yeah, it's pretty close. So um, it's dated July 7th, so it's today, it's fresh. Um, on Tuesday, July 6, 2021, Kentucky State Police Post 14 received a request for assistance from the Lawrence County Sheriff's Office after a man was found deceased in the Peach Orchard community of Lawrence County near State Route 2033. Troopers and detectives responded to the scene. The victim was identified as Carl Daniel, date of birth 126-1963. Evidence at the scene suggests foul play and an autopsy is scheduled for Wednesday, July 7, 2021. Preliminary autopsy findings revealed the man died of a homicide. The case remains under investigation by Kentucky St State Police Detective Jeff Kelly. So, pretty fresh in the area. A homicide. There is going to be some autopsy uh, results that we're waiting on. But as of right now, it's been ruled a homicide. We'll keep you posted on that one since it's fairly local. The second crime of the week that we have is a funny one. And it was sent to us from my friend Erica. She works at WKYT in Lexington. Um, and this was one of their stories. It says, Deputies are investigating an unusual theft in Jessamine County. The sheriff's office says a concrete donkey was stolen from a property in the 2440 block of Bethel Road in Nicholasville. Watts Realtors and Auctioneers, Inc. is offering a $500 reward for information leading to the arrest of the individual or individuals who stole the donkey. If you have any information, contact the Jessamine County Sheriff's Office. And let me just tell you, <laughs> right now, go to WKYT and type in, and in the search thing, type in donkey. There's only going to be one thing that pops up, and this is going to be it, Okay. And it's a concrete donkey. They're offering a $500 reward. This donkey looks like it's worth maybe $1.50. <laughs> like you'd get it at a yard sale? Yeah. Or maybe Dollar Tree? I'd pee my pants if it showed up in our, dollar, or in our yard <laughs> sale this weekend. Like you'd get it at a secondhand rose? Yeah. So if you see this... If you see this donkey, this, make sure you tell... This funky donkey. Yeah, make sure you tell the Jessamine County Sheriff's Office because you're about to get a, a the deal of this century. A $500 reward for this piece of junk? I mean, it has to have some kind of meaning behind it or else people will be trying to get rid of it. I might get Bentley's donkey and turn it in. <laughs> His donkey. <laughs> um, so Kentucky's all about basketball bourbon and horse racing but i never knew we were so passionate about donkey statues um apparently it's a big deal so get on it <laughs> holler at the jessamine county sheriff's office yeah and if you do find it you have to split the reward with us yep 
<laughs> so that I feel like that's all we have for today I kind of thought that it was a little bit short compared to what the notes were um, maybe I just read kind of fast but um, part two will be part two of the Golden State Killer will be more in depth um, of the trial and how he was arrested and um, the evidence and whatnot of that so if you're super into DNA and whatnot then you need to tune in to that and if you aren't then also tune in just because you want to get our views up oh we recorded a bonus episode a couple weeks ago um, with the Boyd County Public Library um, we touched on the Ashland Tragedy book and the Bluegrass Conspiracy book and that has been posted but um, the library is actually going to um, share it on their platforms on the 9th so we will link the library's website and social media to our post but yeah if you were interested in hearing a little bit more about those books or participating in their summer reading program tune into that one and let us know what you think like Carly said that's all we have so holla baby flamingos